Support for Motley Fool Answers comes from our friends at Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. Home plays a big role in your life, and that's why Quicken Loans created Rocket Mortgage. It lets you apply simply and understand the entire mortgage process fully so that you can be confident that you're getting the right mortgage for you. To get started, go to rocketmortgage.com fool. This is Motley Fool Answers. I'm Allison Southwick, and I'm joined, as always, by Robert Brokamp, personal finance expert here at The Motley Fool. And we're also joined in the studio today by Motley Fool Australia's Scott Phillips. G'day, Allison. G'day, bro. He's- Hello, Scott. <laughs> it's good to be with you guys. It's great to be with you. It's kind of good to be on the inside. I listen to this show every week. And then the other side of the glass is kind of cool. And you are legit from Australia, so I don't know what you get out of our show. <laughs> I get, I get you when I get You're like, oh, great. Someone asked about a Roth IRA again. I know more about Roth IRAs than I need to know. Yes. I'm probably Australia's yes. resident expert now in Roth IRAs. But I enjoyed the rest of the show. Well, we're not here to have you talk about Roth IRAs. You're here to share some global investing trends that American investors may have overlooked. And we'll also cover the big takeaways from Warren Buffett's annual letter to shareholders and get some advice for traveling to Australia. Hey, All that and more on this week's episode of Motley Full Answers. All right, before I ask you what's up, bro, we should probably address the Australian in the room a little bit more. Sure, let's do it. So, Scott. This is going to hurt, right? No. Scott <laughs> the Boomerang Phillips is the director of research for Motley Fool Australia. Um, I should tell you that my husband came up with me calling you the boomerang because um, we hope you'll come back. Hey, uh, you nice. <laughs> Nice. That's not why, is it? What? That's not why, is it? No, that's literally why my husband was like, "You should call him Scott. The, you should give him the nickname Scott the Boomerang Phillips because you'll hope he, you hope he'll come back on the show, or because you hope he goes back home." No, no, not if at you don't all. Come back, if you don't come back, we'll just call you the Stick. <laughs> For now, you're the Boomerang. Do, we I'll hope it. it's true. I'll take it. Otherwise, Scott the Stick Phillips, your director of research for Motley Fool Australia. Scott, what has your foolish journey been? You, you. You've been here longer than I have. Yeah, so I've got a I've got a really cool, long and very exciting thorough story, and I'll save you three quarters of that to the short version instead. I was a Motley Fool member way back in 1998. Oh wow! Back yeah. in wow. the big bad old days when, bro, you would have been here. Yeah. Um, plenty of plenty of people who are still here. They were here at the time. And that's kind of cool. I was a Motley Fool reader. There was only a US site way back then. Hmm. Fast forward to 2010, and completely on spec, I see a, an article on Facebook. With Tom Gardner quoted saying, "Hey, I'm gonna we're gonna next next journey is international. We're gonna do something with that." And I thought that's interesting and completely out of character for me. I say, "I'll email Tom Gardner on spec. You don't know me. I don't know you. You're not even in Australia. But if you ever turn up, I'd love to be involved somehow. Let me know." Three days later, I get an email from Bruce Jackson who says, "Hey, I'm the new general manager of Motley Fool Australia. Let's chat." Fast forward seven years and here we are. Oh, actually, you don't predate me by that much. Then there you go. Because I, I just started in 2011. Old. There you go. I thought you've been here forever before me. No, no, this is just the face I carry. We're contemporaries. <laughs> this is wonderful. Um, well, what were you doing before you came to The Fool? Man, so I had a big background of largely com- what we call commercial management in Australia. Mm-hmm. Kind of management accounting meets decision making meets sales and finance and marketing and all that kind of good stuff. So the great thing about it is, and we'll talk about Warren Buffett a little bit later, but his line about being a better businessman because he's an investor and vice versa, that's exactly my journey. So I kind of worked inside businesses trying to get the best out of them, seeing what works, what doesn't, 
And then I get to go to the other side of the screen and say, hey, now I get to look at businesses and say, are they doing it well? Are they doing it badly? And that's kind of the story. Yeah, that's wonderful. So we um, we actually, well, well, I guess I should say, what's up, bro? And then you're going to say the Warren Buffett shareholder letter. And then I'm going to be like, hey, that's um, interesting. What would an Australian man care about Warren Buffett? And then you would say, well, I've actually been to the shareholders meeting and I care a lot. OK, should we just go ahead and do that? Or yeah? What's sure. Up? What's, up, bro? <laughs> what's up, bro? Well, there's this guy in Omaha who writes a letter. And yes, so Warren Buffett's annual letter, highly anticipated every year, came out toward the end of February. And it's many pages long, but I came away with four takeaways that are sort of financial planning, investing related. I'm sure, Scott, you have some thoughts. But I'll start with number one. That is, the wind is at investors' backs. And for two reasons. The, the opening paragraph of the letter has been basically following the same format for 30 years, just the numbers change. And so it begins this year with Berkshire's gain in net worth during 2017 was $65.3 billion. Mm. However, in the next paragraph, he points out that only $36 billion of that came from operations. The other $29 billion just came because of the new tax law. And so a lot of investors have been thinking, like, how are, is the na- new change of the tax law, which, among other things, lowered the tax rates for corporations, how is that going to infect my, affect my investments? And Buffett addresses it right out of the gate in the letter and says, that basically, it almost doubles the amount that they can attribute to their growth and net worth. Wow. And that's just the beginning, right? And so many companies are going to see the same sort of boosts to their bottom line because of the new tax law. So that, that's one way that investors have the wind at their backs. He didn't use that phrase talking about taxes, but he did use that phrase in another context. And that is a recurring theme with Buffett. And that is that he pointed out that he and his partner, Charlie Munger, they don't look at their stocks as tickers that you buy and sell based on what a pundit says, or whether it's up or down, or what the market is doing over the first few months of the year, like in this year, where the market has been suffering some significant volatility. They see it as basically being partners in long-term businesses. And in that, he said, that is basically the wind at the back at the typical equity investor in America. Now, I would assume in Australia, you sort of feel the same way, and that over the long term, clearly when you look at it, you got the wind at your back. Yeah, you got it, bro. The, the Australian market, Australia, Australia is kind of like America's little brother. Um, Joe Mager, our colleague, who some of you listeners may know, um, he was here as well this week, and he was talking about the fact that America and Australia were kind of cousins, right? We've got the same parent in the UK way back in the day. You guys separated a little more violently than we did, but in any case, that kind of same <laughs> idea. And, and, and that thing, you know, so, so to, you know, we are very, very similar as an economy, as people, as markets. And so, absolutely, I, I like to call it democratic capitalism. And the power of that is just amazing. And we have very much the same sort of systems and, and uh, rewards for entrepreneurship, and entrepreneurship that you guys have here. Right. Um, and then, so that brings to number two. And that is, bonds are actually riskier than stocks when you look over the long term. And there are different ways to define risk. Buffett, in the letter, defined it as, quote, investing is an activity in which consumption today is foregone in an attempt to allow for greater consumption at a later date. Risk is the possibility that this objective won't be attained. And he said, if that is your definition of risk, investing in so-called risk-free bonds is actually not going to get you to where you want to be, mostly due to pretty low returns, Mm. as well as the loss of purchasing power during inflation. Certainly, in any given year, as he points out, the stock market is riskier than bonds. But if you're looking at it a longer time frame, it's actually riskier to be in bonds because you're not going to be able to meet your goal. And he pointed out in his letter that 
over all of the 43 10-year holding periods since he's been in charge of Berkshire, so since 1965. In all of those 10-year periods, the market has been up more than it has been down. That does not mean, by the way, that over all those 10-year periods, the S&P 500 has made money. And there have been a couple where it's lost money. And those are actually relatively recent, the periods that ended in 2008 and 2009. And there have been several where, when you look over a 10-year period, the annualized return is in the low single digits. So, it's not been great. But over the long span of history, when you look at 10 years or longer, you're more likely to make money than not. All right, number three. Number three. So, you might take that to conclude that you should put all your money in the stock market. All in. All in. But actually, that's not Warren Buffett's advice. So, at the end of 2017, Berkshire held $116 billion in cash and U.S. Treasury bills, which is up from $86 billion at the end of last year. So, actually, they're building up their cash hoard. So, why is that? On one hand, he's saying it's silly to be investing in these low-returning fixed-income investments. On the other hand, they keep building up this big pile of cash. There are really two reasons for that. One of them is, in the letter, Buffett says it makes sense to buy stocks at the right prices. And In the letter, he basically said, we cannot find bargains at this point. All the deals they looked at last year, the prices were just too high. So, they're willing to sit on cash and wait for better prices. Hmm. And Then the other part, is basically an emergency fund. And he cited the fact that in 2008 and 2009, when many people were panicking, many people, even some of the biggest banks, were finding someone to lend them money because they had such a cash crunch. Berkshire was able to (laughs) go out there and basically say, okay, we'll lend you money because they had the money and they want to be in that position to where some sort of macroeconomic event isn't going to cause them to go begging to a bank. But it's also important to remember that Berkshire is largely an insurance company. And Buffett estimated in the letter that in any given year, there's a 2% chance that there could be a mega catastrophe that costs $400 billion. To put that in context, he estimated that the, tour, that the hurricanes from last year that affected Texas and Puerto Rico and Florida, that cost $100 billion. Oh, wow. So he's saying that there's a 2% chance in any given year that hmm. we could face a catastrophe four times as expensive. But because Berkshire is an insurance company, they have to have that money on hand to cover those claims. And he said elsewhere that he thinks most people should have about 10% of their assets and treasuries. And that's what he actually lays out for his wife in his will if he dies before her, that 10% of her money should be in short term treasuries. And Bro's final takeaway. And the final takeaway is one that he basically says to avoid debt. And he talks about it, first of all, again, so that you don't have to go crawling to banks, but also you should not be borrowing money to invest, which is basically buying stocks on margin. And I bring this up because that's one of the possible reasons for why we've seen volatility this year. Because what happens when you borrow money to buy stocks, when the stock goes down, the broker comes to you and says, either A, you got to give me more money, or B, they sell your holdings. And then it's sort of, it's a bit of a snowball. So he highly recommends that you don't do that. And he cites four examples of where Berkshire stock dropped approximately 50% throughout his history. So, and you never know when that's going to happen. The irony of this is that, according to FINRA, um, margin debt is at the highest level it's ever been. Almost two thirds of a trillion dollars really? has been borrowed to buy stocks, which mm-hmm. could be a potential. It's a potential risk for many of those people, but it's a potential risk for all of us. And in this, to the degree that margin debt is causing some of this volatility. We could see more of it in the future. But you're saying margin debt for people, but I imagine it's mostly institu- like institutions, and or is it mostly individuals? 
I think that's a good question. I don't know how it breaks down, but there's no question that there are a lot of people out there borrowing money to invest. Scary. It's kind of one of those market positions, too, where you see that happen. The higher the market goes, the more people pile into leverage, which is kind of exactly the wrong thing to be doing. We talk about being contrarian investors, or to, to Bro's point, you know, making sure you find good value before you buy. As the market goes up, the, the optimism takes off, the exuberance takes off. And so people borrow more because the shares are higher. So they borrow more because shares are higher and they borrow more and then shares are lower. And to Bro's point, when that falls 50%, the bank comes knocking, you can lose effectively all your equity or a very, very large chunk of what you started with just because you chased the market. And, and optimism exuberance does tend to correlate with higher share prices, which ironically, again, to throw a, to throw a Buffettism, you want to be greedy when others are fearful and fearful when others are greedy. Margin borrowers tend to get greedy when people are greedy and that's exactly the wrong way to go about it. Right. So, Buffett said in his letter that the wind is at investors' backs, which means it's a good time to be an investor, right? Is that what he's saying about that, essentially? It's interesting because Because he would say that if the market, I mean, if if we're taking the greedy when fearful, fearful when greedy, at some point he needs to say that the wind is not at our back, but he never does. Right. Well, I think that's (laughs) the thing. Like, I think there's a bit of a contradiction in in the letter. And what I mean, he's saying we cannot find deals, so we are not going to invest. On the other hand, the wind's at our back. Right. On the other (laughs) hand, he wants the average investor to just keep holding on through the ups and downs. And I think that, in the end, is the difference. When you are a Buffett who has demonstrated the ability to deploy cash in a smart way, you know, be able to be happy sitting on cash when you can't find a bargain, and then be, be gutsy enough to deploy it when, when bargains abound, like in 2008 and 2009, for the people who were gutsy to be buying stocks back then, as opposed to pulling money out of the market, makes total sense. But I think what he's saying is, mm. for the average investor, don't try to do that. Buy stocks. Gradually, you know, with your four hundred one k or whatever, and just hold on through the long term. That's it, right? It's about if you can be Buffett, be Buffett. If you can't, dollar cost average because it's kind of the next best thing, right? <laughs> and guess yeah. what? You can't be Buffett. <laughs> <laughs> you can be maybe you can be David Gardner. Yeah, well, you know, interesting. If you're like, David Gardner, as, by the way, I'm a I'm <laughs> a Berkshire shareholder. As am I for disclosure, right? Yeah, and you know, disclosure. over the last five or ten years, it's it's been about the same as the market. Which when you when you think of that, that's not an awesome investment, not a horrible investment. Yeah. When you look at the fact, though, that he's still sitting on so much cash and mm-hmm. still matching the market or slightly beating it, that's pretty impressive. About a quarter of the company's market cap is now in cash. Yeah. So if you wow. think about that, you're, 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 he's basically doing running, you know, one and a half times as fast to keep up right. at a company level because of all that cash. Yeah. yeah. But we would say that. I mean, we talked about this in last week's episode, right? About the risk of staying in cash so heavily. Right. right. Well, I thought about that, like, and I'm sure someone has looked at it and said, "What if Buffett, every time he couldn't find individual bargains, mm-hmm. just used some of his cash for an S and P 500 index fund, and then sold the index fund if he found a bargain?" Yeah. I mean, because of the insurance company aspect, he does have to have a lot of cash on hand. I'd be curious what those returns would look like, but he's happy to wait on wait sit there and have so much in cash waiting for a solid bargain. I'm also curious about what percentage of his returns come from what sources, right? Because if you look at the actual companies that Berkshire Hathaway owns, it's like Dairy Queen? <laughs> right. Right. Brooks the, Running? Through the Loom. Sees yeah. Candy? The Oriental Trading Company. Your mind? Like, I'm Oriental Trading Company? <laughs> yeah, you know it. I'm sorry. These, like, these are not the kind of stuff, you know, like, I wouldn't invest in these companies, but they're, you know, they show them off at the shareholders' meeting, and it's you know, kind of fun, I guess, to have actual products there and stuff. I but do. It's, I may possibly have a pair of Brooks with Warren Buffett's face on them. 
Which I would kill. <laughs> I would. Kill. I think Mike Olson has like a little running jacket from the Warren nice. Buffett 5K go. that they do. There you go. I was like, I would murder you for that jacket. <laughs> it's so adorable. It's got this little cartoon Warren Buffett on it, and oh, so cute. Um, the letter gets so much attention when it comes out. Uh, and usually I feel in the past we've had more definitive like takeaways and stuff like this, whereas this letter, at least from hearing your take on it, I'm just kind of like scratching my noggin. And like this is, I don't know. I think it really, wasn't a barnstormer, I guess, of a letter this year for me. I would say that it, it, it is particularly good reading given what we've seen in the market mm-hmm. this year. And right, as we speak today, it's the second day of March and the Dow is already down like 800 points so far this month. So for, in those situations like that, if you're getting nervous, it's a great letter to read, both in terms of, n- of feeling comfortable about the long term, but also feeling comfortable with maybe having a little bit of cash on the side. i got to say, for any investor who's even slightly interested in being better at investing, start with Buffett's consolidated letters, whether you buy the book, whether you read the letters themselves, give yourself that education. Like that, That's how you learn this stuff. After that, it's kind of like going to church, right? Don't- <laughs> that is so true. So re- yeah, reading, so reading true. the letter or going to the AGM, and I've, uh, the annual meeting, I've done both a couple of times. Um, it's it's kind of like, it's, it's the preacher up the front saying, now don't forget, this is, you know, this is the thing, right? You're yeah. like, yeah, yeah, we know, we know. And it's not in a, in a positive way, right? In the sense that Sometimes it just helps. You kind of walk away from those meetings, walk away from reading letters going, that's right, I remember that thing. Yeah. So Buffett's line, he talks about leverage in, in one particular part, and Rosary touched on that. But he, And this is a kind of a, he uses a version of this quote every time, but it's, uh, he talks about him and, he and Charlie Munger, his vice chairman, he says, both of us believe it is insane to risk what you have and need in order to obtain what you don't need. Pretty common sense logic, right? right? right. And then out there somewhere else, what is it, two thirds of a trillion dollars, bro, in, in margin loans. And so, we know that's right. And so to hear that again and again, it's like, okay, yeah, good point, good point. When I feel like I'm starting to think, maybe maybe margin line makes sense. Maybe I should go and take a flyer or a risk over here. So no, just just remember, you know, right. at the front pew of the church, the preacher's pointing at you saying, you know, right. how about you fix your, you know, lift your, lift your game. That's kind of the story. So you two, you two are going to start going door to door, knocking on the door and saying, excuse I'm, me, ma'am, do you have time to hear about the good story of Warren Buffett? This is Brother Boomerang and Brother, brother Bro. Brother <laughs> You'll get far with that accent, We are though. here, Don't we are here to show you the Totally, <laughs> totally. I'll just be the pretty face. You do all the talking. The gospel and if I'm the pretty face, we're in trouble. <laughs> Support for Motley Fool Answers comes from our friends at Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. Chances are you're confident when it comes to your work, your hobbies, and your life. And Rocket Mortgage gives you that same level of confidence when it comes to buying a home or refinancing your existing home loan. Rocket Mortgage is simple, allowing you to fully understand all of the details and be confident you're getting the right mortgage for you. To get started, go to rocketmortgage.com fool. Equal housing lender licensed in all 50 states, NMLS, consumeraccess.org number. Scott, do you really listen to the show? 3030. Yeah! Oh, wow. <laughs> Very nice. There you go. at the top of the show. We have Scott Phillips here. He's the director of research for Motley Shul, Motley Fool Motley Australia. Shul. I can't That's talk anymore. Motley Shul Australia. Uh, That's how pronounce it down there. The good thing is that I'm not going to do a lot of the talking. So um, Scott is here to provide a not American perspective and share some global investing trends that maybe we've missed because we were too busy being American. Yeah. You know. Which is cool. That's fine. That's I good. mean, it's fun. I Someone's like, got to do it. it I like being guys. American and I like focusing on 
these on me. Um, but yeah, so Scott, you were here visiting the Fool for yeah. a week. You and Uncle Joe Mager came to town. Indeed. Had a great time meeting all of our fellow Fools up here. It's kind of fun to come and do it every now and again. Come up from a yeah. 15 and a half hour flight to Dallas oh, and then another gracious. few hours. And it's great. It's great. Trust me. No, it's worth it. It's well worth it. Otherwise, I wouldn't do it, right? That is commitment right there. If I'm flying halfway around the world, you guys must be worth it. We Actually, love- the truth is, oh, I can do the podcast. <laughs> Just this. No, I like, I, did, I, did I turn around during a meeting and I was like, Scott, do you want to do the podcast? <laughs> you might well have. And, and you were like, okay. And I was like, okay. Now we got to figure out what we're going to do about it. <laughs> so this is where we landed. So if it's not good, well... It'll be good. It's my fault. Man. It'll be. Yeah, yeah. no, it is. Um, all right. So you are here to give us a perspective that is outside of America. But first, I have a quick question. So you're from Australia. It's yes, the land of land down under mm-hmm. where everything is opposite. So yes. we like here it's winter heading into spring. In Australia, it's summer heading into fall. Oh, we call it autumn. But yes, that's okay. right. So when the markets are down here in the U.S., does that mean they're up in Australia? Yeah. How, how are Australian stocks doing if this only, year? Right. So well, here's the... The U.S. is the, the capital market of the world, right? Half the markets, half the world's market cap, I think it's 60%, bro, I think, is U.S. markets. And so the, the story down there is when the U.S. sneezes, Australia catches the cold, and that still remains true, whether that's the physical economy or the stock market. When you guys have a couple of bad days, we have a couple of bad days. So the, the falls in February when we saw some concerns about where the, the bond yields might go, what the U.S. Fed might do, Australia went, oh. The Americans are kind of a bit freaked out here. We better freak out as well. So, no, unfortunately, <laughs> in that case, we go exactly the same way. Though, I walked through a revolving door to my hotel when I was here. The door revolves the other way around. Really? <laughs> yeah, literally, really. <laughs> that was just weird. I, I literally almost walked into the door coming towards oh, me. That's funny. Yeah. I guess you guys do drive on the other side of the street, too. We do, exactly. So, there are some other opposites. And apparently, the water goes down the toilet bowl differently. I, you know what? I Googled it before go. we came, and that's not true, supposedly. Really? We're going to have to tell you. We all have to t- <laughs> do a test. Send us a video. Send us a video. <laughs> I'll report back next time I'm here about so, that. This is the hard-hitting stuff you're going to get on Motley Fool Answers. Does your over-leveraged portfolio go down the drain the wrong direction? Hey, hey. It doesn't matter which way. It's It's always down. <laughs> all right. So, what is the first mm. global investing trend that you think our American investors here um, have maybe overlooked or you think we should take a look at. Right. So I don't necessarily, I won't come and tell you guys what you do look at, don't look at, and what you overlook and don't. I'm going to tell you about some of the global things I see. You can tell me whether it's something that you guys have very clearly know about, in which case I'm wasting your time, or whether I'm actually adding some value. So here's the here's the challenge. Number one. <laughs> You're coming in so humble. I know. Yes, well, with great. that accent, you've already got the value. Right. Setting low expectations, <laughs> only upside from here. Uh, China continues to grow really strongly. So if we go back 18 months, maybe even two years ago now, the story was all about what if China has a hard landing? What's going to happen with Chinese debt? Is there enough foreign currency around? When the market's got nothing to worry about, it finds something to worry about. And it was worried about China for a good four or six months. China's stock market was all over the place. The currency was under pressure. We moved on, of course, because other things took our attention. The good news, and it won't get reported because it is good news, is that China continues to boom. So the economy itself still growing about 7%. You can kind of choose to trust or not trust the Chinese numbers. But the economy is growing, and that the, the inputs into China and the outputs from China are keeping the world turning. So that's a really, that's a really positive story. So um, whether that's demand for iron ore, which we kind of like in Australia because we've got lots of that stuff, um, Chinese manufacturing, Chinese exports, the Chinese consumer is growing. So what's going to power the world economy for the next 20, 30 years, as well as American economic growth, is Chinese economic growth. And that's a really, really good story. And what are you telling Australian investors as far as your advice for investing in China? Yeah, so and does that um, does that advice translate to Americans? Yeah, I wouldn't invest directly in China right now. I think there's a decent amount of sovereign risk, and we've talked a lot already about risk and return so far. Leverage is one of those. The other is taking on 
more risk than you need to, unless you have a portion of your portfolio you want to take some risk on. And that there may be some value there. Um, I know there are some recommendations in Motley Fool Services here in America, which, which have Chinese-based companies or companies that do business in China. For us in Australia, we've got some really good opportunities that are Australian companies doing business with China. And so that's the opportunity there. We've got um, everything from vitamins companies to infant formula and milk companies. We've got fruit and veg growers. Um, lots of, you know, China is demanding more and more products from Australia. It used to be just iron ore. So we dig it out of the ground, send it over there. They'd make steel and cars and send them back to us. Um, <laughs> that, but now it's very much the Chinese consumers on the rise. And that's a really good news story for Australia. And there's a whole lot of ways to play that growth. The other thing is Chinese tourism. We are getting... 15, 20% a year growth in the number of Chinese tourists coming wow. to Australia. So that's really cool. So local tourism operators, local transport operators, there's some really nice ways to play that without having to invest in China itself. All right, let's talk about your second Number two trend. is synchronized global growth is a thing. Now, did you kind of synchronized growth kind of get a run here a few months back? I don't even know. I know what those three words mean. <laughs> <laughs> and together, I can guess there what we're go. talking about. I'm um, adding no value. I'm sorry. But I would love to hear your... De- I, you know, I have my understanding of it, but I would like to hear yours. No, you first, really. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Well, it's, it's synchronized, and the global yeah. growth is synchronized. Right. It's growing globally, synchronized. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's all it yeah, is. Yeah. So the story is that all of the major economies of the world for the first time since what you guys call the Great Recession, we call the global financial crisis, which is kind of another thing that's different. Um, all the major economies are growing at the same time. And it's really the first time Europe is on the improve. China is growing strongly. You guys are growing really strongly. Australia's kind of okay and catching up. But when you get global growth across the world, you are going to get really magnified returns. And that's the good news. So tick one of the box. I guess if you want to see some other side of it, you want to be a bit contrarian or see what does that mean, it probably means that when all the tide's all the way in, it's only got one way to go next, and that's out. I'm not predicting a crash or a gloom, and even if I thought it might be possible, I wouldn't do anything differently. But just thinking about that, the great news is everyone's growing, that's awesome, and we're still recovering, frankly, from the Great Recession. But as we kind of get to the top of that curve, you kind of figure that you know at some point in the future, growth will be weaker than it is today. And so just be a little bit mindful of that. Don't over-egg the pudding when it comes to margin line. Don't expect that growth can be extrapolated forever. Those kind of things, you've got to keep a bit humble, a bit mindful, a bit thoughtful about what's coming next. Over-egg the pudding. Is, that, like that? is that a phrase you're familiar with, Allison? Uh, no, but I also uh, know how to make a traditional pudding, so I can understand what you're trying with to eggs, say right? there, too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Put too many eggs in the pudding. You, you put too, yeah. I'll stick to investing, not to cooking. No, that's fine. (laughs) Um, Well, here in America, I feel like we've had uh, people calling a bear market is around the corner for the last uh, eight years. Well, 11, 10 years, nine years. I can't do math. How many years have been? Basically, a long time. It's been a really long time. Is it the same way in Australia and elsewhere in the world, where as soon as even even slightly improved economic conditions, people Mm -hmm. are like, "Eh, ain't going to last. And and again, we kind of keep going back to Warren Buffett because he knows this stuff. He is, is, you know, Brother Warren. And he's got his his thing, right? So that's the story. When you think about, you know, the market climbs a wall of worry, which is a horrible, horrible cliche, but it's kind of true, right? Everyone, oh, maybe it's going to fall, maybe it's going to fall, maybe it's going to fall. Look back 10 years, everyone who was doom and gloomy through that entire period, from those who were saying a double-dip recession in 2009, right. 10, and then it was everything else was going to go wrong. You know what? Eventually, they'll be right. And by the time they're right, the market might have doubled or tripled. And the price of being right is actually missing out on truly you know, significant compound gains over time. As investors, we ride those waves. That's how you get the returns. You don't get it by trying to predict and guess and whatever. Yes, the bears are right once every 7, 10, 12 years. The price of being right, though, is really, really expensive. And so, yes, absolutely. There are people always saying, so I'll get into Australian housing in a minute, but the the housing market is really hot in Australia. And so since 2010 or 11, the market's going to crash, the market's going to crash. Maybe it will eventually. 
But again, it's been up probably, it's probably tripled since then. So if house prices fall 30%, you still would have been better to have bought 10 years ago than have worried about when the next crash was going to come. Now, that doesn't mean you should be flippantly buying any time. But again, we kind of go back to the dollar cost averaging thing that we talked about before, which is just kind of keep buying when you see value, ride the wave, keep adding, keep adding. The benefit of that is you end up adding more money when share prices are lower and a little bit less or buy a few less shares when the share prices are higher. So you are kind of doing yourself a favour on the way through. Yeah, so actually that is a good segue because I believe your next point is about Australia's impressive economic growth. I'm catching on with this thing, aren't I? I'm doing alright. So you, you are doing fantastic. Segways and everything. Um, so, the, so, so let me do a bit of flag grabbing, right? You know, you guys, are, you guys uh, are proud. We're American, please. Uh-huh. Like, so I'm going to put the little Australian flag up. You think you know how to wave a flag? <laughs> I'll do my best. Yeah. We have had a record unbroken run of economic growth without a recession. We're now 25 plus years without a recession. Wow. That's which amazing. Is wow. Awesome, right? Now, the downside of that is we kind of forget what a recession is, so we start to get a bit silly and take risks. So that's the <laughs> downside. But the good news is we – and look, honestly, this is this – is, you know, I'm supposed to sit here and say Australia is so great, that's why we've done it. We've been incredibly, incredibly, incredibly lucky. So when you guys suffered through the, the Great Recession, China's – exports, the Chinese demand for iron ore was going through the roof at exactly that time. And mm. so just as the consumer was falling apart here, just as banks were falling apart, China's over there saying, hey, guys, just send us another couple of ships of iron ore, will you? And that literally, as much as it was digging red dirt out of the ground is not very value-adding, it was enough to keep the Australian economy on an even keel. We had one quarter of negative growth and then back into positive growth again. And that was all on the back of the mining boom at exactly the right time. If it had come a year and a half earlier, year and a half later, we would have been in a massive, massive hole. It just so happens it came at exactly the right time. We had a mining bust a couple of years later, and the housing boom was taking off. And so if you can kind of string enough of these together, you're looking pretty good. If they'd come at different times, if they'd overlapped, it would cause an enormous spike and an enormous crash. So let's put it down to four-fifths luck, and, and maybe we'll claim a little bit of greatness for ourselves. But other than that, the good news is the, the boom keeps going. And with synchronized global growth that I talked about, there's kind of not a really good reason for it to end anytime soon. Of course, we never know when it's going to end, otherwise we do something about it. So it's always possible. But the good news is it still looks pretty good. Not as good as you guys, but doing pretty well. And the economy's in pretty good shape. One of the reasons that I am happy to have you on the show is that one of the things I've talked about off and on over the past year or two mm-hmm. is it might make a good idea to be investing more overseas. And the mm-hmm. typical U.S. investor is pretty U.S.-focused. Yeah. Even among fools, we're pretty U.S.-focused. What's the typical Australian investor like? Yeah, so we're kind of the same, unfortunately. So as much as you guys are saying, invest outside the US, we're saying, invest outside Australia. And i got to say, we've got more reason to do that than you do, because you've got, A, half the world's stock markets, and in value terms, and B, a very broad range of really high-quality companies in a whole lot of industries. Australia is largely miners and banks. So we have four really, really big banks. We have two really big miners and a couple of supermarkets, and that's kind of probably about 60% of the Australian market by market cap. So there's 1,500 companies, but all the value is in those big, big, big companies and not much else. And so to the same as you're saying, we, we spend a lot of our time saying to our, our members, please go and look outside Australia. We're 2% of the world's markets. There is 90% of the opportunities out there. If I said to you, you can have anything you want, but only look in this 2% of the shop, you say, well, I want to look in the rest of the shop, thanks very much. You, know, you, you walk into a supermarket or a clothes store and say, I'm going to pick 2% of the clothes. You can, have, you can choose from those. You've got to leave the rest, rest alone. No one would say that's a great idea. But as investors, as you know, bro, there's that home market bias where we say, well, it's in Australian dollars and it's in our time zone and I know the companies. And so 
And I kind of get that. On the other hand, we all use Facebook. We use Google. We, most of us use Amazon, Netflix. And they're just obviously the big ones. But Apple, we, everyone's got an iPhone in Australia. So we know all these companies. And Australian investors just haven't quite got over the hump yet. A little bit like US investors going overseas, we haven't got over the hump of saying, you know what, there's some really great companies outside of Australia and we really should be making the effort. Interesting. All right. And your final trend that you want to share is actually one that we all share. Yeah. So I thought, well, I've shown some things that are different or maybe the Americans mightn't know so well. This is kind of one that you guys have experienced and we're experiencing as well. And it is, at least for now, another bit of wind at investors' backs. And that's that wage growth is really, really hard to come by in Australia, just as it is here. I know I've been you know, reading, following the news here, and wages growth is not happening in the US. It's also not happening in Australia. And so that's kind of tough for a whole lot of reasons. And if we want to spend some time after the show, we can talk about policies and all sorts of fun stuff. Ooh. Alison, you'll hang around for that. Yeah. But I won't bore our <laughs> listeners. What I will say is that has actually meant if you're an investor, you've been way, way, way oversharing in the spoils of that. And so there is, and probably for the reasonable amount of time remains to be, all of the economic growth in the country is going to the owners of capital. That means shares. And so it's another reason why, you know, again, we could argue about the reasons why and what we should do about them. In the meantime, that's where the money is going. That's where the growth is accruing to. Again, another really strong reason to be owning shares. Yeah, it's really interesting. I mean, obviously, politics here in the U.S. has gotten very um, contentious. No. Something like that. Really? I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> no. But and we think of so much of what's going on in America as a mm. U.S. issue. Right. But a lot of it is a global issue. Yeah. There, the, how you know the the whole idea of productivity and yeah. and technology putting people out of jobs mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. keeping wage growth low. It's not just a U.S. issue. No, that's right. And there's also, I think, to some degree, China for a very very long time exported deflation. So things got cheaper because China made more of them and made them more cheaply. So you can buy a Chinese television cheaper than an American-made television or an Australian-made television. So it keeps prices low. And as consumers, we've benefited from that for, from that for probably three decades, right? And so we never really give that credit because there's a really, well, they say it's diffuse benefit. So we all benefit a little bit from it, and that's great. There's some really concentrated costs because people have lost jobs, particularly manufacturing and that sort of stuff. And so we kind of feel that. We don't really feel the benefit. I think to some degree, we're seeing a move towards more wage parity around the world. And again, without getting really wonky about this stuff, um, you know, as you as that move happens, that's why it's harder for Australian and American workers to get wage rises because a lot of the jobs, a lot of the goods are being sourced somewhere else where wages are lower and there's that wage arbitrage. And so we could kind of fight it for a while. But as you say, it's technology, it's, it's policy. And I think it's just the reality of the globalized world is simply saying, well, you can't justify, and again, I'm not saying it's right, but unless governments step in or do something about these things, the reality is that low-wage countries are going to get a higher share of the economic pie when it comes to some of that low-value-add stuff, like manufacturing that can be done much cheaper overseas. Right. All right. Well, that was really great. That's very that kind of you to not, say. That was really for like you did throwing this episode job. together. You like guys whispering sound... in between like a meeting back and forth. This really came together. You guys even sound like you mean it, and that's really nice. I, I appreciate do it. mean it. You it can tell genuine. by how high my register was when I was like, oh my god. All right, but you're not done yet because you're going to stick around and you're going to give our listeners some advice on traveling to Australia. You got it? I'll do my best. All right, Scott, so while you're here, we wanted to get some insider advice on visiting Australia. Our listeners are well-traveled, judging by the amazing postcards that we get. So I've just got a few questions for you, and just, um, you know, this will be easy. This will be great. I'm scared because I've heard your program before. No, this is fine. All right, (laughs) so Australia is a big country. It's easy for us to forget that things are kind of far apart. The landmass isn't that different to the mainland, the main 
uh, middle of U.S. What do you guys call it? Midwest. Midwest. No, no, no. So the middle, the whole, the, the oh, continental U.S. There you go. Thank you. you continental go. U.S. Um, so, what are the three places that you think people have to go see? Because we all think of like Ayers Rock, Ayers Rock, yeah, Ayers Rock, right? But that's like out in the middle of nowhere. But it's still awesomely okay. Worth all right. So, so that here, one, okay. Look, so where should we so go? So it's now called Uluru. Uh, we've, we've adopted the Aboriginal name for it. Ayers oh. Rock was the name given to it by the English settlers when they arrived, and mm-hmm. so um, Uluru was just this spectacularly beautiful part of the world. Lots of red dirt. The most the most amazing array of stars you've ever seen in your entire life. This is just the most magical place. If you can find three days in your trip and you can afford the extra bit of airfare to get from the coast to the middle, that is absolutely the single best place, I would say. If you have the time, go there. You, I promise you won't regret it. All it's right. awesome. Wow, okay, two Culture, other places. Culture, scenery, kangaroos, all sorts of good stuff. Okay. Two other places. So, okay, I can say Sydney, I can say Melbourne because you guys have probably heard of those. Climbing the Harbour Ridge is spectacular in Sydney. The view is awesome on a good day. So do that, go and see that, have a good time. Melbourne doesn't get quite the same credit though Melbourne is really cool if you like your bars and restaurants and shopping and cafes and Alison I'm looking at you um, (laughs) (laughs) it is a really cool part of Australia just really nice little funky alleyways and, and places to be kind of the best of kind of parts of New York and, and maybe I'm not going to do that justice. So, you know, but yeah. really, really cool, really cool God's part of the world. So go and do that. Exactly. And then go to see the third one, an Australian winery region somewhere. If you like your wines, oh. even if you don't, just for the sheer tourism value of it, there's some really cool wineries an hour and a half, two hours north of, of Sydney, um, an hour out of Adelaide, a couple of us out of Melbourne. So different parts of Australia, they're different capital cities, depending on where you are. There is a really cool wine region somewhere near where you are. Go for a drive, have a glass of wine, enjoy the scenery, enjoy the people really just out of the way way to enjoy part of Australia. Aside from a bloomin' onion, which I oh, believe no. is your national food, <laughs> what should everyone eat when they visit Australia? Uh, a dog's eye with a dead horse. What? What? A dog's eye with a with dead horse. Okay, okay, I'm gonna need you to translate that for me. <laughs> so we're not quite Cockney, but we like our rhyming slang. Uh-huh. So a dog's eye is a pie, a okay. meat pie. So not, not, a, not a pumpkin pie, not a, not a sweet dessert pie, yeah. but a meat Savory pie, pie. Pine pastry, meat, beef. With, a, with dead horse, which is sauce, which is what we call ketchup. Ketchup? Uh, so have yourself a pie and ketchup. Get, get your meat pie, put the ketchup on top of it, tuck in. Great way to enjoy so it. So make it, the ketchup is called the dead horse? Well, so it's called, we call tomato ketchup tomato sauce. And okay. the rhyming, ho- rhyming, rhyming slang for in sauce Australia, is dead horse. you rhyme horse with sauce. <laughs> <laughs> <Somehow>. <laughs> All right, we'll get to translating stuff to Australian later. All right. All right, so everyone knows that the word for beer in Australian translates to fosters. So if you want to order a beer, you say, like, I'll have a fosters, please, right? Yes, that and that's works? that's how we get to laugh at the tourists who come. Oh, because that's nobody, not true. Nobody in Australia drinks fosters. If you yeah. come to Australia and ask for a fosters, we're like, oh, that's, a, that's a tourist over there. Don't, you come to Australia, do not. Please do not order a Foster. Do you guys have the same um, explosion of my? I know you've got wine, great Sauvignon Blancs, like you talked there about. You um, do you have the same explosion of like microbreweries that we do in America? Like you yeah. can't throw a cat. That's a bad way to which describe we do it, every day without hitting a brewery. That's like a what they say about Americans, you guys all throw cats. Which I think <laughs> we it's weird, do. but apparently it's, it's true. I don't know. So uh, yes, we're kind of about ten years behind you guys. So the whole expansion. The cats are coming, is what he's saying. <laughs> They're only kittens, bro. We've got to wait. No, but that sounds like a great opportunity. Like for right. anyone who wants to open a microbrewery, go to Australia and do it yeah. because we are super saturated. So craft beer, ha- we call it craft beer. So craft beer has started. Yeah, we and call that's, it craft beer so that's too. kind of working. Um, but we're nowhere near the size and scale of you guys. We don't have the same degree of kind of spread and different different cities doing their thing. We're getting there and some people listening will be like, yeah, I've got a microbrewery in million. Yes, probably. But the, the sheer scale you guys do it here, we, we're not there yet. Ooh, all right. That's let's some go, really cool let's Australian beers one. though. Yeah, good idea. Okay. Bull Ale. 
Full, and that's nice. Yeah, that's nice. Full yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, Full so PA. Uh, we did an episode about the Olympics, and we had Patrick on because he's from Brazil, and mm-hmm. he translated some phrases for us. Um, so um, I was hoping that you could maybe translate some phrases for us into Australian Here we go. and from Australian. I will so, do my level best. <laughs> all right. So, so let's say maybe you're in Australia, and you mm. want to have small chat with an Australian investor. Mm-hmm. Um, I believe in the words of Australia's president, Paul Hogan, you say... <laughs> I knew I won't be able to get that out without laughing. Sorry. That's not how you catch a falling knife. That's how you catch a falling knife. There you go. I just want to hear you say that. (laughs) That's not how you catch a falling knife. That's how you catch a falling knife. (laughs) Okay. Okay, finally. Um, Could you translate a line from Australia's national anthem into English for us? (laughs) Traveling in a fried-out combi with a hippie trail head full of zombies. So a fried-out combi, it's the Volkswagen combi van, which you guys call something I can't actually recall. What's the Volkswagen microbus? Microbus. There you go. So combi is Australian for microbus. Mm Mm-hmm. Headful of zombie is something that we wouldn't encourage any of our listeners to do, which is partake, other than when it's legal, of course, in mm-hmm. a little bit of an alternative herb consumption. California and Colorado. There you go. Washington, D.C. That's, that's where you'll get a headful of zombie. All right. Yeah. So um, here at The Fool, we also have another Australian named Peter Varley, and he um, was saying that if you ask any Australian, they won't actually be able to quote the real Australian national anthem. Rubbish. Really? Okay. <laughs> Let's hear it. I'm not going to sing for you. No, you don't have to sing you don't, you don't, it. You don't need me to do this. You just do you have really? to say one line. Because right. Peter Varley was like, no, Australians just don't wave the flag <laughs> like you said. Just what's the first line? Australians all let us rejoice, for we are young and free. Aww. Nice. No, nice. Very nice. All right, last question. Don't you, you have a line about bombs? <laughs> bombs? Every good anthem has a line about bombs. <laughs> Not in the version I know. Right? That's but just us. That's that might just, be just you guys. Just America. <laughs> we love our war. Mm-hmm. Uh, all right, so you've given us some great didgeridoos. Oh. How about one didgeridoot <laughs> when traveling to Australia? Besides ordering Fosters. That, is, that, that one is ordering Fosters. The other is making really bad didgeridoo jokes. That's probably <laughs> the second one. I, I, th- <laughs> I think the best thing you can do, you know, so we're, we're a pretty friendly people, right? Try and say g'day. Just really? Oh wait, okay, you go, go first. I'm turning, the, I'm turning the tables right here. Uh, g'day. There you go. That's all right. G'day. Do I have to do it with an Australian accent? Can I say just say g'day? Yeah, do it with your own accent. G'day. <laughs> so let me ask you this: Do you really say that? Yeah, all the time. Okay, I all do right. in particular anyway. Yeah, all right. yeah. yeah. Good. Yeah. good. I, you know what? has been cool about being here. Well, I, the way I talk. I have no idea how much slang I use until I talk to you guys. And about a minute into the conversation, someone looks at me with wide eyes and else just give me like, what was that? What did you just say? What is that thing? And it's either natural or not. And it's just, it's very, very funny. So thank yeah. you for having me. I've really enjoyed it. It's, oh, it's been you. a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Really thank has. you for joining us. <laughs> and again, Scott, the boomerang Phillips. Why? <laughs> Brother boomerang. Because we want you to come Oh, back. there you go. All right. Uh, that's the show. I want to thank Alex, who sent us a card from New Schwanstein Castle. Um, it adorably has his four-year-old teeth marks on the corner, <laughs> which you can see right there. Uh, and 50 Billion Cents is back in Boston and sent us a card. So thank you for keeping us 
Um, on top of where you are, 50 billion cent, you're awesome. Um, we are still soliciting categories for the upcoming Luffy Awards. Um, some great ones that have come in include the best non-fool investing podcast, best brokerage, best state to retire with your loofah. So send in your ideas. Uh, they can be serious or not. Our, ans- our email is answers at fool.com. You can send those to us. Um, the show is edited uh, kookaburringly by Rick Engdahl. For Robert Brokamp and Scott the Boomerang Phillips, I'm Allison Southwick. Stay foolish, everybody. 